Good morning. Oh my goodness. I want to I want to begin by just looking around. As far as I can tell, most of the people that I know who are regulars are in their homes. <laughs> For those who are not in Sonoma County, we are, although actually for those in other parts of California, I know there's also wildfires all over. In Sonoma County, we're having our fourth annual <laughs> great taxing of the nervous system where we're all wondering if we'll have to leave our homes in any minute. I'm pretty sure all of us have bags packed and our, you know, and our lives are dependent on that, on literally on the changing of the winds. And it's just so intense. <laughs> it's such, a, I, I'm just so struck by how activating it is for the nervous system. I see it in myself. I see it in my kids. I see it in our animals, you know, just the, the light that's impacted by the smoke and the smell of the particulate in the air is just so you know, there's such a natural human response to be like, ah, and, um, and then we have to get reasonable as, as adults and, and prepare. And, and just amazing to me that we have this uncertainty on top of all the other uncertainties. And I, for one, am extremely grateful for practice in the midst of it. And just to return into the body and, um, and, and exist a little bit, you know, in the midst of, of the chaos and the agitation. So today I, I have a talk, it's, it's shifted a little bit given the, the burdens on our nervous systems. <laughs> but I wanna talk today about calling in, which is uh, the opposite of calling out. So the, the Sangic practice of calling in. And um, and before I do that, though, I want to I want to just invite us to come into our bodies and settle and and really take a few minutes, if it helps, to close your eyes and not have to be in the visual field of Zoom. Please do. And just arrive in the body and just notice what is here in in the physical body for each of us today. And whatever there is, particularly if there's activation or agitation, but really whatever is arriving, um, I just want to offer the invitation to breathe in what is uncomfortable and breathe out presence and ease. Breathing in what is painful and breathing out a joyful presence. Breathing in resistance and breathing out arriving.
And even though in Zen we don't, it's, it's not typical in Zen to offer lots of technique, this um, utilization of the breath is available to us all the time as human beings. And we just encourage us to, to know that it is meditation it, it, and it, it bears the fruits of meditation and it's, and it's ours to enjoy and engage. And the second thing I'd like to do before I start talking um, about calling in is, um, well, it's related. I'd like to try an experiment and I hope you'll join me in it. Um, it's a, a practice because in Zen, actually, we have the, we have the practice of chanting together. You know, ceremonies and service where we chant together and we use our voices together um, is a kind of, it, it, you know, there's lots of reasons for it. There are historical reasons and there are uh, reasons for it in terms of our practice life of offering merit and calling on um, intervention and uh, calling on protection, keeping the sutras alive. But there's also the, the effect of harmonizing and regulating our bodies in, collectively and actually expressing the Sangha body as a collective, expressing the voice of the Sangha. And it's, kind of, it's an enactment of Sangha as, as one body. And we don't get to do that very much in this Zoom situation that we're currently in. So I wanted to try an experiment of just humming together and I'll time it, it won't go on for long if it's very agitating to you. <laughs> or you can mute your computer, I guess, if it's very agitating. What I would like to see if we can do is I'll offer a tone and then we all unmute and just, and I'll even, I'll even have my timer. And just for a minute, we'll hum together. <clears throat> and you can decide whether you want to uh, just meet the same tone or if you want to harmonize, it's up to you. Okay? All right, let's start this. Okay, so unmute if you'd like. That was when I put it my I put my view on speaker view so it would pop around. <laughs> Thank you. 
Was any was it disturbing to anyone? <laughs> Be honest, because I might try it in other places. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> oh my goodness, I miss the I. I miss I miss being in express voices with other people. I miss singing and I miss chanting and I and I miss the kind of the soul nourishment of that. So thank you for for trying that with me, with us as a sangha. Um, that that exercise is a uh, was inspired by. Um, There's one that oh many that's offered in a book called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menikin, which is a book about. Um, trauma, uh, race, uh, racism and trauma in the body. And um, it's, it's a profoundly beautiful book and um, for me, and it's naming things that um, I have I've felt and kind of had an inkling of, but are, it's naming them in ways that I'm like, oh, it's so relieving to have somebody who has studied this so deeply name, name this in, in, in the ways that, that Resma Menikin does. And, and the, I want to acknowledge there's the limitation of the book is that he particularly focuses on he's African-American. He focuses on white bodies, black bodies and police bodies and the trauma of race and, and bodies in those three categories. Um, so the, the, the downside of that is that it leaves out. Um, I'm just giving the people who are on here. Um, it leaves out the experience of people that don't follow those categories, which is many, many people, you know, and, and still, um, there's, there's something really profound for me in the offering that he's making. And he gives lots of exercises throughout the whole book of engage with the trauma. So what the great offering of that book is about working with race and racial conditioning and the trauma in the body, including on white people, um, of racialization and, and racial inequity and violence. And... Um, and how to address that in, in, in the body and in the individual, you know, as a way, and this is super important because you could feel that it's his life work as a way to address that interpersonally in our communities, in our country, and just in the wider world. So he comes from that vantage point. And this, this in itself, this book is a, is a, a beautiful calling in Invitation into um, working with racial trauma and and in, including the you know not not so frequently named part of how white people are traumatized even and maybe mostly it, when we are perpetrators of violence, um, both physical and psychological. The way that even even when you are in a place of advantage in a hierarchy, you are harmed by the dehumanization that happens with something as divisive as, as racism and, and racial inequity. So I appreciate that he uh, forging that, that terror into how everybody can heal. Um, there's a, I know I've mentioned this before, there's a quote attributed, well, actually, I think it's a calligraphy that was done by Thich Nhat Hanh that says, the next Buddha will be Sangha. And I know I've mentioned that at Stone Creek before. So the next Buddha will be Sangha, meaning the next, you know, incarnation of Buddha in this world will actually be 
not a singular being, but the Sangha being, the Sangha body. Well, actually, I don't know what he meant, <laughs> but that's how I hear it. <laughs> and I read that quote in an article by um, Sebene Selesi called Sangha is a Verb. And I think it might have been a presentation she gave at Sakyadita, which is a gathering of Buddhist women, international Buddhist women. Sangha, so Sangha as a practice, as an engagement, not as a thing, or not even as a, as a noun. Sangha is a verb. And I've been thinking about how Sangha's, you know, Sangha in, in all of its definitions are places of, of refuge where the possibility for liberation is being taken up by everybody together. And we are good at it. It doesn't mean we achieve it. It just means that, that we come, when we come together in Sangha, we're coming together with the intention of taking up liberation. And that that makes for a different culture. It's a different cultural entity. And, and then for me, Sanghas are places of refuge in the world, no matter how complicated and flawed, because they're places where we can, we can risk to be in conversation with one another. We can know that the other people that are coming there are also seeking liberation and we can, we can do things differently than we do other cultures. Try to engage with one another in differently than from the habit energy of dominant culture, certainly, and also of all the other cultures that we inhabit. Sanghas are also always, like by definition, collections of human beings <laughs> and everything that that means. So that when groups of human beings gather together in any form, all of us are there, whether we like that or not. Our, our wisdom is there, our good intentions are there. In Stone Creek, I, a defining feature for me is the warmth and, and the kindness that is there. So it's a warm-hearted sangha, generally. Um, there's a real intention to be tender with each other and kind. Um, but also, and, or maybe not, but, and also what's there are our injuries. There are our traumas. The things that we carry around that are unresolved. Our, the whole of our psyches are there. Our confusion, our delusion, um, the ways we've been hurt, our anger. That's always there in Sangha. So when we take those parts together, you know, the complexity of what it means to be human and the deep uh, intention to be and act together in liberation, it becomes, for me, it becomes super clear that like how we engage with one another is it, that's it. <laughs> you know, that is the road and the point of practice. It is the place where practice really manifests. When um, Sebene Salesi was describing this in her article, Sangha is a Verb, she said, and this was from a few years ago, <coughs> she was saying, Sangha as a refuge is not well integrated. Yes, it's often referenced as a third jewel, and yes, it does exist in time and space as a functional process to keep our communities running. Like many Dharma 
Center's New York Insight Meditation, which is my home, Sangha, where I work full-time as an active center with many offerings, and we rely on a multitude of wonderful Sangha members and volunteers to exist. But mostly, we do not actively, formally practice Sangha as relating. There's a strong emphasis on personal awakening through individual study and practice, even if it's done in large rooms together with other practitioners. There's a lack of emphasis on and even avoidance of relating to others, especially about differences. And especially when those differences challenge our ideas of what practice looks like. I believe if we aspire to cultivate welcoming and inclusive sanghas, we must introduce practices and processes to engage and explore our differences and our similarities. So she was talking about sangha as a verb in terms of the ways that at um, New York Inside Meditation Center, how they've cultivated a culture around inclusivity and working with differences, particularly around race, but of all, all kinds of cultural differences and uh, societally imposed differences. And I want to acknowledge that, you know, uh, relating to one currently in, in terms of, in times of pandemic, <laughs> It's definitely strained, you know, relating to one another in times of evacuations, definitely strains our capacity to be together. And um, as Buddhist practitioners, we're also always in Sangha. So every, we can always kind of understand that we're in the Sangha of humanity. And we can, we can take the things that we strive together explicitly in Zen Buddhist Sangha and apply that to our whole life and every interactions that, that all the interactions that we have. Um, this practice of calling in versus calling out. Does that, do people know? So calling out is like when you're called out for something, um, somebody calls you out on something that you've done wrong. Probably universally not a pleasant human experience, <laughs> but you know, sometimes necessary. Sometimes we welcome it. Sometimes we don't. Um, or, or, and I feel like it's been, it's the expression of what it means to hold one another accountable. Oh, I gotta, I'm going to call them out on this. The problem with calling out, first of all, I think is that it is that thing. It's rooted in, I think, well, I think it's actually rooted in division and separation. And because of that, um, it's an unpleasant experience, you know. Although I can say I have been called in on a number of occasions where I'm not enjoying the situation. <laughs> it is, I'm uncomfortable, but if there's enough ground of trust and relationship and practices present, um, I'm willing in a way that is quite different when someone's calling me out in a way that is separated, if that makes sense. There are two features I, I've been thinking, I think a lot, I often think a lot about dominant white culture and, and the ways that it shapes, well, really everyone in the United States, whether we're white or not, dominant white culture has a, has a big impact. It's like you, could, you can argue that it, or that, that dominant culture is, is white culture. And it impacts us differently depending on our racial identity. And it's still impacting all of us in some way or another. And there are different features that people are, that scholars are working to identify and have been for many years. What are the features of this culture? There, there's, a, there's a great list of these that I don't have with me, but they, it includes like um, always being on time <laughs> and 
the elevation of the written word and um, suppression of emotion, these kind of things that are, that are probably familiar to many of us as, as dominant culture agreements. And, um, there's two that I think are super challenging in terms of our interpersonal connections and in terms of trying to engage the practice of calling in. Um, the first one is a, a somewhat constant feeling of competition or measuring or hierarchy that is rooted in, in individualism. So in the delusion of being separate, when we engage with one another, there's often, if especially if we're really steeped in dominant culture, there's often a kind of establishing of who's up and who's down and a, and a wanting to win or lose. Sometimes we're invested in losing. Um, and there's also a, a strong cultural value that I can see that really came through for myself. It came through education of being right, you know, um, and knowing stuff. Oh yeah, I know that. <laughs> I'm so, I haven't, I haven't been able to curb it much yet, but I can see how often I'm in conversations with people and they're mentioning something like a, like a thing that they've discovered. I'm like, oh yeah, I've heard of that. <laughs> like, why, why does that, is it so a reflex to say, oh yeah, I know, versus like, oh, that's wonderful that you found this thing. It doesn't matter if I know or not. And I was in, in this contemplation and I read a um, Facebook post by Zenju Earthlin Manuel that said, uh, she, she, this was her whole post. Any notions of feeling superior or inferior than anyone is to add to the poison of our times. I test myself always. Any notions of feeling superior or inferior than anyone is to add to the poison I test myself always. So I feel like she, this is her expression of this practice of watching and attending all the time to the delusion of separation. And we can, fee, we can, we can think that it's only when we're putting people down that, that we're separating, but it's even when we're elevating people that we're also enacting the delusion of separation. So... In Sangha, which again, like we could take as Stone Creek or we could take as Buddhist in communities of Buddhist practitioners, or we could take as in our whole lives. When something is challenging, um, it's very important for us to attend closely to what we do, even if it's all internal. And one of the things that, that I have found super helpful and I wanna offer is it really helps to ground in the body and notice what's happening. Somebody says something agitating or irritating, or even I disagree with it, or whatever it is, like, you know, if, if possible, pause, breathe, ground in the body and notice what happened just there. What was the somatic experience of, I disagree with you? No. <laughs> and our end. And watch, because for me anyway, the habit body, or the, and the habit body, by body, I don't even mean my somatic response. I mean, you know, my whole body mind is rooted in the delusion of individualism that I've been, that I've been steeped in as a human being in, in my cultures, in the various cultures I've been in. Um, the, the impulse is separation. I'm right and they're wrong. That's like, so when we notice that thought in our head, oh, that person's wrong. We've made ourselves right. 
and we've, and we've separated. So we're falling into the habit energy of disconnection. And there's a kind of tension there. And I would say um, in terms of our Buddha nature, that tension that's there is because we are now out of sync with reality, actually. We're, we're trying to yank ourselves out of the fabric of reality where we're connected to everything. And we're like, no, 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 no. I'm not connected to that thing. There are, so this is really, I mean, to, I want to be super careful to say there are times, oftentimes, when we have to draw clear boundaries with harmful action. And that's different than the delusion of separation. Clear boundaries, and I think I, I, think I have talked about that before, but that probably could merit it. It's all talk. Clear boundaries are a beautiful expression of relationship. Boundaries acknowledge relationship and that's where they come, you know, when they're good and they're healthy, that's where they come from. But this is separation that I'm talking about. And I, and it's uh, often habitual. It's often acculturated. Um, it's a norm. It's a, I would say in my world, it's a normal thing to do when somebody, you disagree with somebody, you, you separate them. That impulse to just separate and be like, and to relieve the tension. So there's like, there's a feeling of agitation. There's that tension that goes with it. I want to relieve that agitation. I name it as that person being wrong and me being right. And I, I might not even name me being right, even though I've kind of done that when I say that that person's wrong. Then I, um, I'm trying to relieve that tension by that little, you know, poof, they're wrong, poof. I off gas a little bit of that tension. And in the short term, it may be satisfying. So I was thinking about how this is, it's a kind of addiction, you know, there is a kind of addiction to delusion that we keep choosing over and over again, just like any kind of addiction where we choose the thing that ultimately is going to harm us, but we keep, we just can't help ourselves because right in that moment, it's going to give us some relief. That's number one. And number two, it's known. Uh, someone who is in the world of recovery said to me lately that, the, that they have heard is the opposite of addiction is connection. I was like, oh, that's so applicable <laughs> to Buddhism. The opposite of addiction is connection. And in, in this case, it's the it's a kind of an addictive quality of negative karma that we're that we're working with if we want to. Um, so we have to pay close attention. And it this might seem like um, you know. I'm just, I don't know, talking about like something that would happen in a process group or something, but this really is, this is really Buddhism. You know, the art and it's, it comes in various of our precepts actually point to this kind of practice where we're paying close attention to what happens when we're in any kind of conflict with another person. The, the ones, the precepts that look at speech, I vow not to lie. So lying, you know, there's the obvious line, but there's also the lying about how we are connected to other beings that we often do when we are enacting separation. I vow not to slander. When we say oh, that other person's just bad and wrong, that's slander in its essence. And I vow not to praise self at the expense of others. So those three apply here. And the other that I think is really alive in this kind, in a place of ten interpersonal tension is um, a harbor or a disciple of Buddha does not harbor ill will. Because sometimes, um, and again, I would say this is really deepened by dominant culture, when we feel wronged or when someone has said something we disagree with and we, and we feel that agitation, um, 
there's a kind of satisfaction in holding on to separation from that person. You know, if, you, if this is not something that troubles you, generally you can think about some of people in leadership in our country and think about how it can be a little satisfying to be like, I don't like them. You know, I'm, this is harboring ill will. <laughs> Even, you know, it's, we could maybe find a way to have a healthy boundary with that relationship. But that satisfaction of, of making that person wrong is harboring ill will. And we have to um, be in environments, I think, and I would offer that Stone Creek is a place that's ripe for this possibility, where we get to risk trying something different than the habituated separation, um, and then have the experience of something beneficial happening and not just something bad happening when we call one another in to relationship. It makes me think of how this idea that sangha is a verb is very akin to how love is a verb. You know, love's not a feeling. It's not just like a, it's not just like a happens. It's, it's how we act. It's how and what we do. Love is an engagement. It's a commitment. Sangha is just like that. It's an engagement. It's a commitment. And, um, and it manifests in the world by how we, oh, I never noticed that manifest has man in it. <laughs> it humanifests in the world <laughs> by how we do it, how, how we live it, how we are it. And, and here's a real major obstacle, and I want to name it in part because we're all, you know, are not, I can't tell if everybody's in Sonoma County, but most human beings are stressed out right now. <laughs> Actually, no matter where we are, but if you add the fires to it, we're super stressed out. To be in relationship is unfamiliar, maybe, like it's not our habit energy, and it's effortful. It does take effort. It's uh, quicker and easier to do, again, like just like the addiction pattern, it's quicker and easier to do a separation and be done with it. Like, I don't care. I don't like that person. They're not worth my time. You know, They're dumb or whatever that the thing is that we do to separate, to try to dissipate um, and disconnect from the relationship. So we do have to have lived experiences of it being beneficial when someone um, says something harmful of falling them and having that be a, actually something that something good comes out of. But I want to offer that it is possible to do. If we are grounded when we reach out and if we are standing in our deep like practice intention. I, uh, there's been a couple times lately in the, so we're doing this four month intensive, the Dharma of being anti-racist with, in connection with um, access, the access to Zen Sangha, which Reverend Lan Shut leads. And there's been two times already that I have in a small group said something and later I'm like, oof, I'm not sure how that landed with that person. It's all on Zoom. So that actually makes it even more fraught in a way, interpersonally. And, and I've followed up with the person and it's vulnerable and it's uncomfortable to do it. And I'm, and both times there've been, it's just been so sweet what happens in the following up. Um, maybe, maybe once in my life I can think of where I kind of reached out to follow up with somebody and they were like, no, thank you. <laughs> That's important. When we reach out to follow up with someone, we reach out and say, I would like to follow up with this. Are you open for that? You know, are you open? Do you have the energy for that? Because maybe they don't, you know, and right now maybe lots of people don't. 
And uh, for the most part, my experiences, as I've made that a practice in my life, people say, oh, I appreciate you caring about that. Or yeah, let's find the time. And once someone didn't end, it was painful, but it was also like, okay, okay. I actually felt the trust that that person had in our relationship to say, I'm not up for that right now. Um, I wanted to just mention an example from um, the wider Sangha. Uh, I was I was in a meeting where the person who was speaking was a person in uh, power in that situation, and they were reflecting on their own racial acculturation, and uh, it wasn't explicitly a Buddhist environment, but it was a kind of sangha environment, and um, they were remembering when they were when they had become aware of racial differences this was a white identified person and they had as a child had heard the n-word and they friend who was black what is that word and they saw the impact of that word and um and and the pain that it caused and it and it woke them up to the the violence of racial division and when they told the story they said they said the n-word in full when they were telling the story and it was and it and it's a, that's a powerful and violent word. And I noticed it at that time. And I had the thought, I wonder if that person has ever heard the request by people of color that never say that word. Like ever, <laughs> just don't say it, you know, even if it's in a song lyric. And this is a discussion that family, cause we, we're around teenagers, you know? So there are lots of song lyrics that have the N word that ends in an A. Most for the most part, and it's not a universal thing where people will be like, Well, I'm not going to change the words of an artist of color. For the most part, the request is that I've heard in my experience from people of color is white people, please don't say that word, just don't say it. And that's not a thing to do to be PC or to get it right, it's just it's a thing to hear and to even internally be in conversation with. Okay, black Americans have said a lot of black Americans have said, Please don't say that word if you're white. So I, I reached out to this person and said, you know, could we follow up? There's just a thing from the meeting. I wonder if we could follow up. And we had a conversation about it. And it was so, uh, uh, but I was really careful to make sure I was super grounded. I didn't think the person was wrong. I just wondered, I thought this was probably a person who would like to know that that's a request that's out there. I wondered if they did, they knew. And that was the way I entered the conversation. Not that I was offended or that they had done something wrong. And I think those that's important, right? I wasn't coming like, I gotta tell you when you went, when it all went bad. You know? <laughs> um, so we had a conversation and I said, have you ever heard this request? And the person said, I have heard that request. And I noticed that I said the word in full. And they also shared that when they first, the first time as an adult that they shared the story was with a colleague who was uh, a black American. And I, and I think what they were saying was that she had given them permission to tell the story in full. And that's interesting, right? So to honor that request. But, so we just had a conversation. We, we just, we called each other into this dynamic and we, and at the end of the conversation, a couple of things happened. One is the other person said, you know, I think that these are the conversations that, that people want white people to be having. They were excited. <laughs> and I had the same feeling. It was, we were vitalized by the conversation. And then we both acknowledge that even though we didn't know one another very well, um, we, our relationship had, 
begun to develop and we were deepening in relationship. And I wanted to bring that as an example because, because you know, it, we need to know that these efforts are worth it. And again, this can feel like, oh, you're just talking about political things or something, but like I would, I would offer that this is literally the work of, of our practice of liberation. The liberative practice of Sangha is to uh, be with things that are uncomfortable and to call one another into engagement around them. Last week in, in Cora and Charlie's talk, there was the question of what can we do together as a Sangha? And I would say like, this is something we can do. Or these are a set of things we can do. <laughs> this is a whole host of things we can do. We can make a practice of grounding in our bodies that, so that it's so familiar and it's that it almost that we make a habit of it. We replace the habit of um, lifting off from our bodies and being unaware of our bodies that we, we make anchoring in our bodies a habit that, that brings us into the present and it makes it more possible for us to show up fully in any given situation. And I would also say that we, um, we engage the practice of attending carefully to what's happening with us and then what's happening in relationship. And that when we, when we communicate with one another, we see that as an act of connection and not of uh, competition or aggression or division. And we might, you know, it gets subtle. I think we do have to look, I feel, in the couple of years that I've really been focusing on this in my practice, I feel that um, there are times when my, my literal intention is to make connection and what I'm doing is disconnecting. So it, but because the habit of disconnection and separation is so strong in how I've been acculturated that sometimes, and, but, and if I'm really in my body, I can feel the difference. So even though I'm saying like, so somebody will say something that's challenging that's happened for them. And then I'll offer an anecdote of something similar my attempt is to connect through like, oh yeah, that's happened to me too. I can feel in my body though, often that offering is disconnecting, if that makes sense. And I just offer it as a thing to explore. And I think another thing to be, um, to take heart in is that we can be present. We can be grounded in our body, even in our agitation. So uh, uh, there's a footnote in Resume Medican's book, where he's talking about being present with agitation, where he says settled. So he's talking about settled as being grounded in the body and attuning to the body. Settled does not mean unworried or unfrightened. It means that the person's body is able to access its resilience. A human body can be frightened, angry, or filled with dread and settled at the same time. And he goes on to say, I suspect this happens in many heroic acts. So in this, in this time of uh, ongoing kind of chronic agitation and, and like high levels of agitation and disruption and uncertainty, um, we don't utilize our practice to try to be something else. We can utilize our practice to be fully here with it. And, and then to know 
that when we can be in that place, when we can acknowledge fully the experience of agitation and, and uncertainty and dread that we may be feeling, we are more, it's more possible for us to connect with others in Sangha, meaning the Sangha of all humanity, um, skillfully and, and with kindness and with, and with, the, with our deep intention actually as one of the possibilities for going forward. Um, in Sangha is a verb, um, Sebene Selesi says, beloved community was a phrase and idea often used by Dr. Martin Luther King who went as far as to say that the ultimate aim of the work of the civil rights movement was to foster and create the beloved community in America. He said, our goal is to create the beloved community and this will require a qualitative change in our souls as well as a cha qualitative change in our lives. And he believed relationship as central to creating beloved community. And then, and then he talks about how we might, we might to start that through changes in policy, but how ultimately beloved community, creating beloved community is a change beyond legislation. And when um, Sabine Selesi brings it up, she says, in Buddhist sanghas, what she's talking about in terms of sangha-ing and creating beloved community is a change beyond meditation. I like that. It's a change beyond personal awakening into creating the potential for liberation in our communities, both our Buddhist communities and all of our communities. This idea that Thich Nhat Hanh offers us of the next Buddha will be sangha, we can um, embrace right now. You know, we don't have to wait for Maitreya Buddha to show up. <laughs> the next Buddha right now, the next Buddha of the, the Buddha of the next moment can be Sangha. And it can be the way that we open to and call one another in to a more liberative way of engaging with one another. 